We'll start with chapter 7, and that is entitled, That Which Defiles. And it says this. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law, who had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. Sorry, when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked, don't you see that nothing enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and out of their body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not, anyone, did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as he heard about him, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demons out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, 
Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, For such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him inside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh he said to him, Ephaphata, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. During those days, another large crowd gathered. And since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. And they've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, um, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. And his disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them and also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied, and afterwards the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 people were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came to and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, you can hear it, can't you, this resigned kind of sigh, not again. He said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and they said, it's because we, haven't bre- we have no bread. And aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you still talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? And they came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village And when he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. 
Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. And then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You can see it, can't you? But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes uh, in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And I want to pray, and I just want to pray for Juliet. She's a little bit like that little girl. She's not very well at all. She's continually fitting during the day. Um, and it's just kind of, um, it's very similar to that story, isn't it? We pray for Corinne and Ian. And we'll pray for this. Um, if you're here for the first time in a while, we're trying to read the whole of Mark's gospel before we get to Easter on, 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 in our services, which is why we're taking such a big chunk. Father God, thank you for sending your son to be Messiah. He is God incarnate. He is God in person and he is powerful. And you are still powerful today and you still have compassion. And we pray for Juliet that um, this fitting will cease, either sovereignly by your hand or by wisdom you give the doctors. We pray for Ian and Corinne for peace for them, that they will know that their child is in your hands. And we pray for ourselves that you'll speak to us um, through your word this morning. Um, speak to our hearts about you, our Messiah and our King. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. So Ian will try and keep up with me in the slides. Um, in the back, I've just got really one thought for you today. Really one thought for you today. There are sermon notes, um, they're around, and as the slides come up, the words in red are on, uh, words in red are on the word search, um, but the sermon notes are there even if you don't want the word search, just to help you. They're on the windowsills. Just one thought, really, for you to, today, and that is messiahship defines discipleship. Messiahship defines messiah, uh, discipleship. The kind of Messiah Jesus is defines the kind of disciples we need to be. You see, at the end of this reading, Jesus says, um, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Define, define messiahship, and you define 
discipleship. Such a simple concept, and yet completely missed by the church at large. Because in the main, we want to be conquering disciples. We want to be taken seriously by the wider world, not suffering disciples, despised and rejected by men. And maybe it's not surprising so much that the church misses it because the disciples missed it too. And as we shall see, because they were simply uh, following uh, the Jewish leaders of the time, ironically, because the Jewish leaders missed it too. So what kind of Messiah were the the Jews uh, expecting? They were expecting one who brought royal dominion. They were expecting a king, a political figure, someone who would allow the Jews to have their own land back and have it under their own control, under their own governance. They expected a Messiah to come and and purify temple worship, which is ironic when you think what will happen uh, in a few weeks' time in Mark's Gospel. They were expecting a Messiah who would come and expel all these pesky Gentiles um, from interfering in their Jewish life. And instead, what does Jesus do? He challenges the Pharisees um, on their traditions. We saw that thing about hand washing. We saw the thing about Corban. I'm not going to go into it. These are additional traditions, though, that the Pharisees have tacked on um, to the law of Moses. But Jesus goes one step further, as you'll see. He challenges the very law of Moses. And as Mark summarizes it, he declares, as all, he declares all foods clean. This is important. Mark is writing probably to... Um, to a mainly Gentile church in cosmopolitan Rome. It's recording Peter's memoirs, as it were, for the, for the church in Rome. And they need to know this stuff, as we need to know this stuff. Um, therefore, all foods are clean. It's, it's important for us. But if that's not enough, that he's challenged them along the way, um, he proceeds in what happens next to make it abundantly clear that he is Messiah to the Gentiles too. And we see three little stories which we'll look at really briefly, which, where Jesus is making this precise and deliberate point. So we read um, in chapter 724, if you've got your Bibles open, um, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of, of Tyre. He exits um, Israel um, to the north, and he goes on to a little uh, mission trip into Gentile territory. And as we saw in the video, um, in one house... Um, She's not the house owner, but a lady comes, a Greek woman, and she pleads with Jesus to cast an evil spirit uh, out of her daughter. And Jesus says to her, this is an amazing conversation actually, first let the children eat all they want, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And the amazing thing about this lady is she seems to be, I think in Mark's gospel at least, she's the first person to understand a parable without having it explained to them. Um, she's a Gentile, and yet she's the first person to understand well, when Jesus puts something in the, in the terms of a parable what he's getting at. She understands he's saying, um, I've come to the people of Israel first. Israel go first. And she understands that, but actually when we read it again this morning, sometimes when you read something again, new meaning pops up, doesn't it? He has kept the, the, he has kept the door open, hasn't he? He hasn't entirely slammed the door on them. He said, first... Let the children eat all they want. And she's understood everything he said. And she said, yes, the Gentiles are traditionally dogs to Jews, but surely even when you're feeding the children, uh, do the dogs not come second? They get the crumbs under the table. Um, And Jesus commends her. Because he's come to her in in faith. Uh, She's understood what he said. Um, 
and, and she's replied to him in the language of the, of the parable that, that, that he's spoken. And he says, be, be, for that, you can go. And your daughter is well. And this speaks to Mark's Roman readers. Yes, salvation has come from the Jews. Yes, the Old Testament scriptures are Jewish. They were promises to, uh, to Jews first. But the Gentiles gather up the crumbs. The Gentiles are included too. Uh, Jesus is a Messiah, not just to Jews. It overflows to the Gentiles. And that's important, isn't it? Because that includes people like you and me. And then in the next story, Jesus meets this deaf and mute man. This is the one, this is the account. There's, there's three accounts, little stories, which are unique to Mark, and this is one of them. And this man, we're told, could hardly talk. Um, he's called a, a mogilalos. I don't know how you say that, but if we were trying to translate it, we would say that he is hard of speech. He has difficulty um, speaking. Now, Mark very rarely goes back to the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, in his writing, his, his readers are Roman. Um, they're Gentiles. They don't have a background um, in the Jewish scriptures, so very rarely does he go back. But this word is important, this hard of speech work, because it connects what happens here, what Jesus is doing, to a promise made all the way back in Isaiah 35. On the day of the Lord, according to Isaiah 35, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given it to the splendor of Carmel and Sharon, and they will see the glory of the Lord. Lebanon is the same area as where Tyre is. They will, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute, the mogilalos, tongue will shout for joy. Mark says this is specific. This is Jesus doing a specific thing. This is a, a, a fulfillment of prophecy um, made in a Jewish context that when the day of the Lord comes the, the mogilalos man um, will shout for joy. Jesus is not just Messiah to the Jews. He's Messiah to the Gentiles. One further little story that proves that. To cap it off, um, Jesus is Messiah to the Gentiles. Um, he feeds 4,000 Gentiles. It sounds very much like the feeding of the 5,000. Um, there are a lot of similarities if you read the two, but there are equally there are a lot of differences. So we can't conclude, as some skeptics do, that in a sense that the same story of one event has got mangled and then it's got put in twice. Absolutely not. We can credit um, Mark and Peter with, with more sense than that. There are enough differences, um, time of year, uh, number of people, um, all those different things. But most importantly, the difference is the territory in which it takes place. The reason why we have two accounts like this, Jesus is bread of life to the Jews. Jesus is bread of life to the Gentiles. Jesus is the bread of life, the way to be right with the Father, the way to be spiritually fed for people like you and me. But ironically, when he's then back into Gentile territory after, the, after those three little encounters, the Pharisees come to him and they ask him for a sign. Can we have a sign, please? And you think, well, if they just walked with Jesus um, for the last few days, they would have had miracles enough to fill them for a lifetime. But they want more than just a miracle. They, they, it's a different word. 
A miracle is kind of like an exercise of power. Uh, that's the normal word. They want a sign. They want Jesus in the lab to do uh, a miracle on command in a test tube before them so that he can prove his divine creations. And Jesus says, no. No, it just does not um, work like that. Can I tell you, if you are waiting for a sign um, before you trust Jesus and walk with him, no, it is not happening. It is not work like that. You walk with him, and when you're walking with him, you will see the signs. It works the other way around, and it is absolutely fundamental. If you're waiting for a sign, you'll be waiting forever until you die not trusting Christ. So get up, get your butt into a standing position and, and walk with Jesus, and you will see signs enough. But in all this, so he's, Jesus is Messiah to the Gentiles, but as they get back into Jewish territory, then this question about how do, how do the disciples understand Messiahship um, how are they getting on um, with this? So the disciples, now where are their hearts at? Well, actually, to start with, they're more like the Pharisees than they are like the Greek woman with the poorly daughter. But they're getting there over the course of chapter, the rest of chapter 8, which is an important chapter. It's a turning point in Mark. You'll see that they are getting there by stages. Initially, the first thing that happens um, is that they're in a boat um, and they've forgotten the bread. And Jesus tells them to be aware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. Now, the Pharisees and the Herod, they have very little in common. Um, guess the only thing the main thing they have in common is that they're going to crucify Jesus later on um, but the thing they have in common here is is disbelief unbelief so he, he says beware of unbelief they have a discussion <laughs> you can see the disciples getting together what's it be what's it be I didn't get that um, and apparently this work for word for discussion comes up seven times in Mark and it never has a good outcome um, it's always kind of people discussing together what's that mean hey and and they go Oh, and they know they go. No, what he means is we've forgotten to bring the bread. And Jesus says to them, "Do do you still not understand?" He says, "Do you still not understand, or are you are your hearts hardened?" That's really strong words, isn't it? And you, you'd be surprised, perhaps, that Jesus asked the disciples, "Are your hearts hardened?" Well, hard hearts are a problem for religious people. An ignorant heart can't harden itself because it, it doesn't know, doesn't have the knowledge of Christ. A hard heart is when you have the knowledge, um, but you don't do anything with it. So the danger of the yeast of Pharisees, uh, the danger, there's a danger of unbelief is for those who have the knowledge. Those are the people who God holds accountable. You've, you, you've, they've seen Christ. They, they've seen what he's done. What are they doing um, with the knowledge so the danger is always for those in the know. Hard-heartedness is always a danger for disciples or for those who would be disciples or for those who have been around Jesus enough. So initially, Jesus says, are you hard-hearted? And then we get this funny little story of the guy who is healed in two stages. Why does that happen? Is Jesus not powerful enough to, to heal him in one go? I think we have to assume it's, it's deliberate. It's a kind of acted-out parable that this man in Bethsaida comes to Jesus he, he, Jesus does something to him initially and he gets blurry vision 
And then Jesus touches him again and he sees everything clearly. I think it's an acted out parable for the disciples. They've seen something. They've got some blurry vision. But there is still further to go. And then we get the, the, the breakthrough. It says that um, Jesus there set out. Uh, it says, in the NIV, it just says, went on their way to the, um, to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. But it's, it, there's a kind of marked turning here in the language. Jesus set out. I think he's kind of, his mind now is set on uh, Jerusalem. There, there is a turning point. There's a clear path and it needs some clear understanding. So he asks them this critical question. Unlike your average rabbi who is a question answerer, Jesus is a question setter. He says, who do people say I am? And they reply, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others one of the prophets. The Jews understood that Elijah had been taken bodily to heaven and was kind of looking after Israel. But whatever, without going into detail, we don't have time. The common view is that Jesus is the equivalent of one of the great Old Testament figures. But Jesus says that's not enough. Or at least that's the implication. And he says to them, who do you say? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are God's chosen king. You are God. God's rescuer, God's anointed. Hallelujah. Hooray! We wave a little flag at this point. This is kind of one of Peter's high watermarks. Woohoo! But what about you? It's not enough to rank Jesus alongside all the other great figures or authorities in your life. It is not enough to consider him anything else but the Lord of all who demands to be Lord of all. Do you see that? If Jesus is Lord of all, God incarnate, then he demands in your life to be Lord of all. Not just equated with a whole bunch of other authorities. He's the Messiah. And having reached this watershed moment, then Jesus um, starts to um, teach the disciples plainly. Um, That's in verse 32. And he tells them this. He says, the Son of Man, the Messiah himself, must suffer many things must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. So irony of ironies. Finally, Jesus is teaching the disciples plainly, um, and Peter sees fit to correct him. Oh dear. Hang on a minute, Jesus, this suffering, this death stuff, that's not in the plan. See, no one had taught before this point that the Messiah would suffer. No one had connected the Messiah passages in the Old Testament with the suffering servant passages of Isaiah. Certainly no one had seen that the best of the people, the leaders and the teachers and the religious people and the educated ones, would be the one who, in the end, engineers the most demeaning of deaths. So Peter rebukes Jesus, no way. And Jesus turns around and, and before all the other disciples, Jesus, Peter's taking him aside. Just come over here so I'll have a quiet word with you. And, and, and Jesus where, turns around in front of all the disciples, rebukes him in turn. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in con- mind the concerns of God, but merely human 
concerns, just dreadful three words, merely human concerns. Peter is seeing this from a merely human point of view. Maybe that's motivated by friendship as a human concern that he doesn't want to see Jesus suffer. Or maybe it's a human concern for his own skin. He, doesn't, he wants to be on the conquering side, not on the suffering side. When you, you can't have messiahship and then add merely human concerns. Jesus is the Lord of all who demands to be Lord of all, but you say he can't be Lord of all and me because I have all these human concerns. But when you put human concerns over the things of God, you have played Satan's game. And you've played into his hands, and that's what Jesus rebukes him. So as we come up to Easter, let me just ask you this question. What kind of Messiah are you following? And what then does that mean for you? We grew up, at, some of us, sorry, I was going to say we, but some of us of a certain age, grew up in a country that was heavily influenced by Christianity. It was a blessing of God upon some remarkable men and women of faith in past generations. It was also the blessing of revivals that came through our country. But it leads some people into a Messiah era that Jesus will lead the church into political respectability. And that was never part of the gospel. And for sure, it's gone. Are you still prepared to follow Jesus? Now that the political respectability is over. And the only way to get that back is, is for God to bring revival in the country because uh, democracies follow the people, they never lead. But it's a Messiah error. Because that's not the kind of Messiah Jesus is. We just lived through a blessed time. But Jesus is not the Messiah of personal victories over all the troubles of life. He's not an all-conquering king. Is that your Messiah error? You're expecting him to sort all of life out, make it smooth. Or is the other Messiah error just that you... You've got these human concerns. How will I look in front of my friends? What is he going to say to me about my job, my priorities, my, my bank account? These human concerns are not really prepared to put them under Christ. Or can you see clearly that Jesus is a suffering servant Messiah who leads you and me into the painful change of learning to put other people's needs before our own. Ouch. The kind of Messiah we, Jesus is, defines the kind of disciples we need to be. So, Following Jesus, 
Is this the kind of Messiah you see Jesus as? This is how Mark finishes chapter 8. These words of Jesus. Jesus called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life, spends their life for me, will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is what matters. What matters is your soul um, before the Lord on the day of judgment. And you cannot give anything. You have nothing to exchange for your soul. You need your soul in, in the right place. You need Jesus to have paid for your soul to be saved. And if anyone is ashamed of me, And my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Wow. Can you do that? What is Jesus going to do for you? He's going to deny himself. He has already done that. He's not considered equality with God something to be grasped he has already denied himself by coming to earth out of glory he's going to deny himself again and go uh, to a bloody executioner's death he is going to lose his life hanging naked on a cross he is going to stand actually he's not even going to stand he's going to hang Um, in shame. Now this is your Messiah. This is, this this morning is one of those paradigm shifting moments. This is one of those one days I hope where you go literally, oh my God, I have got this wrong. I have not seen this clearly. This is my Messiah. This is my path. Denying myself. Losing my life. That's what Jesus says. Standing in shame. Whoa. So where are you? Are you with the disciples in the boat? Hard-hearted? You're here, but really you just, you're actually, you're staving off the implications and you are hardening your heart time after time. Um, Dangerous, dangerous place to be. Because you don't know that point where God says, okay, that's enough of your hard heart. I'm not going to break it through for you. Or are you at the stage of the blurred outline? Like the man who is half healed. You see bits of it. But you want the rest. If you're a hard heart, please, please soften your heart. Do something about it and bow the knee before Christ and do it sooner rather than later. We do not know how much time we have. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Like the Third World War, you know, total annihilation has come a lot closer in the last few weeks, hasn't it? Or are you at the stage of the blurred outline? Well, I just kind of plead with you to kind of keep pressing in and finding out um, more about what kind of Messiah Jesus is. Discipleship Explored, we start a bit a great time um, on uh, Thursday night, or Life Explored. Um, come and go beyond the blurred outline until you're clear uh, about Christ. Or if you've got a clear view, or at least you think you've got a clear view, um, that Jesus is the Messiah, you've got a clear view. Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord. And you know him as Lord, but maybe you've never really seen really clearly that he's the suffering servant. You know him as Lord, but you didn't expect discipleship to be this painful. have very little for you except to say that that was the path that Jesus went down and that is the path that you will follow but except to say that Christ will be with you um, all of the way and that Jesus will return in glory in his father's glory and with the holy angels and one day take you home if you continue down that path have this really nasty feeling this has completely reshaped my concept of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus but maybe that was what was needed so let's pray Oh, my Lord, my Lord Jesus, please, please forgive me for my human concerns. How will this look? What will people think? Oh, my Lord, forgive me for the the moments of the hardened heart just don't want to go there today my Jesus forgive me that I see you as a suffering servant and rejoice that as a suffering servant you go to the cross and rejoice that um, you died for lost sheep and then I think that has no implication for the shape of my life Please, Lord, forgive me my double-mindedness and my blurry vision. And help us to see you clearly today. Help us to do something about it. And particularly in this run-up to Easter, I pray. My brothers and sisters here, pray that we would all see you more clearly. Give up our blurry vision. Lay down our human concerns. Pick up our crosses. And follow Jesus into suffering. Lord, it scares the very living daylights out of us. But this is our call, and we know you to be one who makes the burden feel light once we get there, once we've taken that step of faith. We know that you'll be with us to the end of the age. We know that you have compassion on our children, like the lady with the, uh, the, uh, the possessed girl. 
But help us walk differently, Lord. And first of all, we need to see clearly what kind of Messiah you are. Lay that on our hearts this Easter, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.